This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. We are back today on Art Curious with another great interview episode for you. I recently enjoyed a conversation with the acclaimed historian, critic, and author Ruth Millington all about her new book, Muse, uncovering the hidden figures behind art history's masterpieces. Muse follows the fascinating true stories of 30 incredible muses and their roles in some of the world's most iconic artworks. Now, we instantly recognize most of their faces from art history's most well-known masterpieces. But just who was Picasso's weeping woman? Or the burglar from Francis Bacon's oeuvre? And why was Grace Jones covered in defeaty? Far from posing silently, many muses bring emotional support, intellectual energy, career-changing creativity, and practical assistance to artists. However, the long-standing image of the muse is that of a passive, powerless model, usually one who is young, attractive, and female, who is at the mercy of an influential and older male artist. Could this impression be incorrect and unfair? Is the trope of the muse a romanticized myth? And have people embraced or even sought the status of muse? And most importantly, where would artists be without them? By delving into the real-life relationships between these models and their artists who immortalize them, Muse reveals Muse's active creative participation in the works they inspire. Muse will surprise you, as it did me, with the answers to all of these questions and conundrums and more, and it is well worth your time. So please enjoy this interview with Ruth Millington. Ruth Millington, welcome to Art Curious. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I am so happy to have you today. I loved this book, and I want to talk about first uh, starting by breaking down the concept of the muse, because I think traditionally a lot of people, when they think about who a muse might be, they might think of a muse as being synonymous in some ways with maybe a model, you know, someone who's usually a, a vibrant young woman whose job it is to like stand there and somehow be inspirational to the typically male artist who is trying to represent her. So is this the right way for us to be thinking about this artist-muse relationship? Is there even such a thing as an artist-muse relationship? So that's a really good question to start with. And actually, that was the main question I was asking in the research for the book. And even before I started writing this book, I'd written a bunch of articles about, well, true stories behind famous paintings. And an editor asked me not to use the word muse for one oh. of these articles, which really got me thinking about, well, what does this word mean? And when I've told, you know, friends and family about the book, they've also asked me this question, what is a muse? <laughs> I mean, obviously read the book. Right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, you pick up on a really good point in the fact that this word has come to hold all these really negative connotations and also sexist stereotypes. Yes. And so in my research, I was trying to unpick, you know, are these correct? Is there a difference, for example, between a muse and a model? Does a muse have to be a model? Does a muse have to be a woman? <laughs> There's lots of questions which I started to ask myself in the research for this book and came came to the conclusion that a muse and I had to come up with a definition a muse really is a force of inspiration in some form for an artist and there is no typical artist muse dynamic or relationship they're all very 
different and that's what the book aims to show as well that the role of the muse is really varied and it goes far beyond modeling for an artist and in fact some muses have not modeled at all but they've inspired in completely other ways so who are muses and the role is really varied but the best way for me to sum it up is to say that they are inspiring in some form or other I love that you are reclaiming the term because I know in your introduction, you mentioned that uh, the UK critic from The Guardian, Jonathan Jones, who I think is persnickety (laughs) in in many cases, uh, that he mentioned that it was time to, you know, like dismantle the term and to stop using it. He called it silly. But I love how you actually find that there is a good way to reclaim it and to access that. Has that been a process that's been difficult to kind of get people to reimagine and re accept the word? Mm. I think it is a tricky one because it's not just people like Jonathan Jones who I mean yeah I found his article really funny to be honest because he was saying let's lock away this term but then the way that he was defining the muse was falling into all those stereotypes Um, so I saw that as part of the problem and then even a lot of feminist art historians and I would count myself as a feminist art historian their narratives they often use this phrase more than a muse. So talking particularly about women artists who were muses for male counterparts and then saying, well, they were more than a muse. They were also this, this and this. But for me, that's also problematic because it downplays the contributions particularly of these women when they were muses. And some women also chose to be a muse and they didn't want to be an artist. So that's also quite reductive so I've seen yeah some people have found the word completely problematic and wanted to cancel it I guess but for me this is a word that's not going anywhere it's it's everywhere it's in popular culture and if we don't rescue it from these stereotypes I think it will just continue to be misused and muses will be misrepresented which is why I thought okay, this book has got to take this stance and I guess once and for all show what muses have done for art history. Absolutely. I I have a number of questions running through my head right now, but one of the things that I loved about your book is that you've been able to separate your chapters into these sections so that you have um, people who are muses to themselves, um, the artist as a muse, and then there's also muses who inspired whole movements or became synonymous with groups or ideas. So I wanted to talk about those distinctions. How did you decide to Uh, to organize your book in this way? And also, who gets to be a muse? And can someone just decide to become a muse? Well, I started off with a a really long list of muses that I knew about and then research took me and and I found well I kept finding more and more muses and I've got a long list somewhere of about 60 muses. Oh wow. And yeah so I felt like you know I can't include all of them in in this book. Maybe that's where volume two will come in. Yay! But um, for this book I knew that I had to arrange them in some way and actually the more I began to explore stories, the more I found that some were too similar to one another. So I couldn't, you know, it would be, it would be perhaps tedious for the reader to, you know, encounter similar stories again and again. So I knew I had to divide them up into sections that were quite distinct. And I guess quite naturally in the research, I found these groupings of, you know, 
particularly women who've taken themselves as their own muses or performers, bringing that performative element to the role of muse. So there began to be these groupings and then that's where I could work out, okay, who do I want in this grouping and whose stories are different from each other's enough that I can include them in this section. So there's a theme running through the section without the stories overlapping too much. But basically there were too many, too many individuals to choose from to put them all in the book. And there are so many other great stories out there. But I, I hope that this book shows a good breadth across time and culture and race and gender. And this, I guess, leads me on to your, your question about who can be a muse. Yes. And how, how do you become a muse? And I think... For me, uh, there's a lot of factors that come to play there. And uh, I'm an art historian and have always focused on social history of art. And I think, you know, it's those cultural contexts which are really important. So, you know, a muse in Victorian Britain is very different from a muse today. And we have to take that into consideration when understanding these stories. Um, you know, for example, Elizabeth Siddle, she was in Victorian Britain, very um, patriarchal art world. Women weren't allowed to enter life drawing classes. She wanted to be an artist. And for her, becoming a muse was actually a means of opportunity for her. She approached the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, very famous bunch of painters. And she wanted to work with them and model for them. And she worked with numerous artists from that group as a way of kind of entering their ranks. And then she was able to learn from them and she went on to exhibit alongside them and became one, one of this movement as both a muse and an artist as, and also a, a poet. So I think for her, it really was an opportunity and she kind of maneuvered herself into that position of muse. Whereas other muses have fallen into the role accidentally or perhaps unwillingly even. There are um, examples of this in the book, particularly I'd say with contemporary artists. And then there's also this idea of self as muse. And one of the artists in the book, Sunil Gupta, an Indian born photographer, he talks about the fact that he, he felt he had no choice but to take himself as his own muse because he had historically, starting in the 80s, been photographing all these gay male muses out and proud in New York, in Canada, in London, and then photographing protest marches. And it was all about representing this body of people. Um, but then when he found out that he had HIV and then AIDS, he he really realized that nobody like him wanted to be pictured. There's so many taboos, particularly for an Indian man, that he found that he was the only person who could actually represent that status in mm. photography form. And then also came to this idea that art for him became a form of therapy as well. So you'll see there's different ways that people have become muses and it's not a snap decision often either. Right. That was something I really enjoyed also about your book was that I was delighted and surprised to see that there were quite a number of men whom you profiled as you were just speaking about. And I feel like sometimes we need to frame them in some ways or there's this impulse to frame them as male muses, kind of like the way we 
intentionally or not, sometimes say women artists because the phrase muse, it feels so gendered the same way that artist sometimes does, even though neither, I think, should necessarily be. So was it different? I know you're talking about, uh, you know, using yourself as a muse simply because you might not be able to have access to other people to have that same kind of discussion or social awareness. Is there any difference for a man to be a muse? Is there any any different in that relationship, whether it be to another artist or another person or to oneself? I think... The, the thing that kept coming up in all of these dynamics and stories between artists and muse was this idea of power and who who holds the power and who and, and how does that shift between people as well and I think in the art world historically men have held the power and they still do in many respects right particularly in particularly in the commercial you know in the art market if we look at who's making the most money at auction it's still male artists yes. um compared to say museums where women artists now are being represented much more particularly in London there's been a huge push to represent women artists and give give historical women like Dora Maar for example solo shows yes and I think you can see this in the relationship between artists and muse as well where historically the male artist has held the power and they've had a female muse that does often fall into the dynamic in who is doing the painting, who is doing the posing, where it is in that more traditional kind of model of what you would expect to be an artist and muse. I think with a lot of the male muses, it felt like they were almost assuming that role to kind of subvert expectations. And a lot of the examples I put in, that there was quite a statement that was being made with the very fact that the muse was male. So, for example, David Hockney was working with, um, again, gay male muses, and it was all about showcasing and celebrating homoerotic desire. And these are the paintings he made of young men getting in and out of swimming pools that really made his name for him because of this statement that the muses carried. I love that. I love that chapter. I also wanted to talk a little bit. There were a few artists that I actually didn't know a whole lot about, or at least um, their subjects that I didn't know a whole lot about. So I wanted to know if you could share with our listeners a little bit about Louisa Casati, because her story was fascinating to me. And I knew a lot of the artists whom she worked with, like, um, you know, Romaine Brooks and Man Ray and Keys Van Dongen, but I didn't know a lot about her. Could you talk about her muse uh, position? Yeah, so she's she's one of my favorites and also the the artist Dina Razin who illustrated the book again Dina we both fell in love with Louisa Casati and her story I can see Um, why and just you know just to set the scene for listeners of the podcast so um it's said at the start of the 20th century in Venice that you could see this ghostly female figure walking around the city at night wearing just a fur coat nothing else um (laughs) and with her two pet leopards and this was the legend that was Louisa Casati who would then go home to her palace which is now the Peggy Guggenheim (laughs) Museum and here she she just left her very wealthy husband and kind of established this really bohemian lifestyle in Venice where she was renting this palace and opened up the doors and had these wild parties where she 
always made sure that she was the belle of the ball with these really crazy costumes so she wore one which was a load of electric light bulbs and actually electrocuted <laughs> herself oh my gosh on, on the evening it. of one of the parties yeah um she would wear live snakes around her neck she used to dilate her pupils to make them darker and wider and it's like well she actually said that she wanted to become a living work of art and you can see this idea that she wanted to become a muse and not just work with one artist but many and as you say so she worked with really big name artists Man Ray for example and actually she really helped him make his name because after other women saw photos that he'd taken of her with these big black eyes and her hair was always quite wild and snake-like she looked like this kind of Medusa figure and after other women saw these photographs they said well we want our photograph taken by him because she looks great (laughs) she looks so like hypnotic and you know he's he's immortalized her so she worked with him she worked with the futurists um she worked with Romaine Brooks, who actually Romaine Brooks didn't want to paint her at the start. And Casati kept demanding, demanding and demanding. And in the end, Brooks, yeah, she acquiesced and agreed to paint her portrait. And that that's one of my favorite portraits I discuss in the book because she there is looking like some crazed harpy on the rocks and the portrait was painted in the island of Capri and it kind of tells that story and shows her desperate to become a muse and be immortalized by all of these different artists and yeah she put all of her money and time and creativity into working with these artists and funding them and turning herself into this living work of art. I think she is incredible. And I want to urge our listeners, if they haven't already seen this image, if you haven't already read the book, of course, be sure that you go and you look up the image of um, of Louisa Cassati by Romaine Brooks, because it is um, incredible. It's just truly amazing. I love this. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I try to do whatever I can to make sure that I keep my car running perfectly, I get its oil changed, I get the tires rotated, and I generally just take good care of it. Now, we also try to do the same for our bodies, with exercising and eating right, trying to get enough sleep, and more. But just as important is doing so for your mind, because how we care for our mind affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest just as much time and care into keeping our brains healthy. There are plenty of ways to support your brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. And there is also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I use BetterHelp to connect with a therapist in less than 24 hours, and I loved being able to talk to them via phone or chat without waiting, traveling, or sitting awkwardly in an office. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy, and like me, you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So I recommend you give it a try. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash artcurious. That's betterhelp.com slash artcurious. 
Now, something else that you referred to briefly a little bit earlier was the idea of contemporary muses. And that was another thing that I really engaged with in your book, because I think, as you mentioned, sometimes we have this romantic kind of Pygmalion-like notion of muses that make them seem like they're old-fashioned or historical or something that's mired in the past. But you, in the book, you've highlighted some wonderful examples of muses who are currently living. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, I'm especially thinking about Tilda Swinton and Beyonce and Grace Jones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm i a modern and contemporary art historian, and I particularly enjoyed writing these more contemporary chapters. And I think as well, because, you know, going back to this idea of power, with a lot of these pairings of artists and muse, the muses were and are today more famous than the artists they they've been working with and i think that's an interesting dynamic so tilda swinton for example she was working the series i talk about in the book is a, a series of photographs where she's been shot by tim walker who is a fantastic photographer for vogue and other big fashion magazines but he really blends fine art, um, art historical sources and fashion in these really surreal fairy tale images. And I interviewed Tim for the book, which was a great honour. Um, and he spoke about how it was actually Tilda Swinton who came to him with the idea for the photo shoot that they would make together. And they flew over to Mexico and spent a couple of weeks in what was a surrealist estate bringing to life all of these surrealist creatures from different surrealist paintings and he also was the one who told me for him there's a clear difference between a muse and a model and he said he works with tons of models but for him a muse is someone who will step into the frame and they will meet him halfway in the portrait and they will dictate the look and the feel of, of that work of art so they have agency and that interview really that helped to shape my thinking around the idea of the muse as well um and sorry oh no please continue <laughs> um and I was gonna say as well with these more contemporary muses I think because they're they're stepping into this notion of the muse with all the history that comes with it as well so they're almost playing often with this idea of what a muse is. So that adds another layer to these images. I totally agree. I love that so much. Um, there, uh, That is a playfulness that I think is valid in these images. And I'm thinking about Beyonce's, you know, her her look as if she's a Madonna in, in her maternity photos, things like that. It's really fun to see them playing with these art, histor art historical tropes. Do you have anybody's story in your book whom you profiled who ended up being a surprise to you or someone whose story was um, a new one that you explored? Well, I'd have to say the Frida Kahlo chapter, I knew I had to include Frida Kahlo because she is perhaps the most famous artist who has taken herself as her own muse. Yeah. But I found this chapter the most surprising to research and then write up I think because we all have this idea of Frida Kahlo mm. as this feminist icon and everything's about the way she looks and her fashion the way she played with all these traditional Mexican dresses and flowers in her hair 
But actually, the more research I did, the more I found that she, yes, she constructed this self on the outside, but she actually wrote in a letter that this was a construction to hide the fact that she, you know, had a disability. One of her legs was much weaker than the other, and she wanted to hide that from people. And there's this sense of the constructed self in one form. And then I spent a lot of time looking at her diary and I met with various art therapists who we talked about her images together and came to this realization that Carlo actually, she wanted to be a doctor and it was on her way back from medical school when she was a teenager that that's when she was in this famous accident yeah. that left her bedridden and that's the point at which she turned to painting and started really to paint herself out of necessity because what else was there for her to work from when she was in bed for nine months and in a lot of her images you see that she's actually trying to cut her body open so there's a lot of piercing with thorns or nails and look below the surface and we all know the famous paintings of her with her hair braided with a monkey on her shoulder but I was more interested in finding those lesser known works where she's presenting herself as a doctor she's holding you know tools of the trade or a palette which is a heart with blood on it um, she's painting herself next to one of her doctors on equal terms so this chapter took a surprising turn for me where I was showing actually she was trying to work as her own doctor and heal her pain her physical and her emotional pain and I also found out that that famous quote I am my own muse the subjects I know best the subjects I want to know better which is attributed to Frida Kahlo and has been by major museums and in books actually was not her quote at all that was um, fascinating to me I did not know this until reading this yeah I mean everybody this is printed on a diary I have in my house it's everywhere <laughs> um but it's actually by a contemporary Nigerian artist Aroma Eloa and she posted this short poem on Tumblr and then it was picked up and reshared by Frida Kahlo accounts and you know you have to be so careful I think especially with ideas around the muse of just finding this internet version of art history and mistaking it for the truth and a lot of the book was dividing up fact from fiction and you know trying to get below the myths that have been told by artists by art historians um, by popular culture in the media so yeah this chapter was a really surprising one and one of the last ones I finished because there were so many <laughs> versions of it and it evolved over time who are some of your personal favorite muses, either within the art and art history world or even just in general? Do you have anybody who inspired you in particular? Um, so when I was putting the proposal together for the publisher and there's other writers or this may be of interest to people wanting to write a book, I had to hand in a number of sample chapters. Yes. And yes, and one of the first ones I wrote and one of my favorites was about Dora Maar, who, for those people who don't know, she was one of Picasso's most important muses. And I think this she, she's a good example of where this phrase more than a muse is always used because she was a photographer in her own rights before she met him. She had her own studio in Paris. She was working and exhibiting with the Surrealists and her images are really, really beautiful. Even 
even her fashion photographs, they all have this surreal edge with interesting plays of light and shadow. Anyway, she, after meeting Picasso, she introduced him to photography and took him into her dark room where she showed him all these different modern processes. And we see a real shift in his work at this point uh, in terms of him going away from that bright palette painting in black and white. And most famously, the, the, the epic mural anti-war protest picture, Guernica, is in black and white. And you can see at the top of the painting this darkroom spotlight, almost reference, referencing Mars studio. And it's not just photography she introduced him to, she also brought him in line with her own super left-wing politics. She was a member of several political groups at the time, and it was the headquarters for one of these groups, which she turned into a studio, which was big enough for Picasso to paint Guernica in. So we see her influencing him in terms of the subject matter with this anti-war stance in his paintings, in terms of the style, black and white, um, palette not the color and then even the portrait of her as the weeping woman which is always seen in romantic terms and I think we always see this the muse is always seen in terms of the romantic relationship they have with the artist yeah. and people think she's crying in this portrait and it, oh, it must be a reflection of her relationship with Picasso but if you look closely in her eyes the pupils are actually war planes which again shows this stance that she took she was really anti-war and really left-wing and so this for me this portrait really shows the impact she had on him in so many different ways so I I loved writing this chapter and finding out more about Dora Maar's own work and the fact that she yeah she was the model for various portraits but as a muse she actually inspired him in ways beyond modeling so for me that was a really important chapter and um, I was it was amazing to see Time magazine picked it up and ran the chapter recently on Dora Maar which I think just I shows the strength you know of her as a, a, a an individual and artist. And that's something that I think is really fascinating about Dora Maar in general and about her story and and a few others that you've referenced in the book as well is that they aren't passive or at least not always and in, in many cases these are very active and talking about Tilda Swinton you've made that clear as well that it was more of a partnership it's not just someone just standing there and somehow emanating something amazing that makes them inspirational it's like they are actually taking these active roles in guiding artists to to new breakthroughs I think that's very cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for anybody who's tried life mo life modeling, it's difficult. Yes. <laughs> it's actually hard to sit still or stand still for various hours. I've tried it and it's not something that's easy to do. But you see in all the, you know, the greatest portraits of art history, it's, they're always about more than what the person looks like. Yes. There's always signs in there, which I think you can unpick. So for example, even, you know, Klimt's fa famous pictures with women in these beautiful robes there's far more to to these stories than first meets the eye and I wrote the chapter on his muse and partner of 26 years and by partner I mean creative companion and friend not romantic partner and um, so Emily Fluger she was a fashion designer and 
just as important as Coco Chanel, but nobody knows her name. And she opened up a store in Vienna selling these long, free-flowing robes to women where they didn't have to wear the corset anymore. She designed them so they could go about everyday modern life as, you know, liberated women. And these are the designs which we see in Klimt's paintings. And his contemporaries, Igor Schiller and Kokoschka, they were painting women in the nude at this point. And Klimt, on the other hand, he started off by doing that. But after, after meeting Emily, he then started painting all of these women in beautiful, long, flowing dresses. Kind of, they almost act as an advert for her store, which is amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> it's like the more you get into these stories, I mean, that's, I think, one of the main points of your book, the more fascinating and interesting these relationships, whether it be to yourself or to someone else, become. Um, we are running low on time. Before I stop recording and seal things up, is there anything else that you want to talk about that I haven't asked you yet? Mm. Something which came out of one of the chapters, the last chapter in the book, actually. So I interviewed one of Kehinde Wiley's muses, yes, Sulio. Um, and he talked about the fact that, yes, he inspired Kehinde Wiley, but then he was also inspired by the artist. And this idea Love that it. inspiration can ripple out and working with this great painter first of all he found it really great to see himself represented in you know a huge portrait which was then hung in museum walls but also this act of modeling and collaborating with this painter also introduced him to the art world and now he works as a curator and he works with other artists and you know you can see how becoming a muse has really benefited a lot of people through history so I think this idea that the muse is always a passive victim is just so far from the truth yeah. and a lot of the stories really show the fact that actually becoming a muse and seeing yourself represented in art form and immortalized is actually really empowering yes and no wonder that so many people have actually wanted to be a muse <laughs> still do. <laughs> exactly. Why wouldn't you? I think that yeah. you're right. That is very powerful. I love that. Ruth, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to encourage our listeners to please go buy, if they have the means, buy a copy of this book. It is wonderful. It is so much fun. I learned a ton. And uh, Ruth, again, thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk about Muse and, you know, get these stories out into the world, which deserve to be told. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing them with the world. We are always so appreciative. I love I love learning new things, even as an art historian myself. There's never a lack. And thank you for introducing so many of these important people to us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this interview with Ruth Millington, author of Muse, Uncovering the Hidden Figures Behind Art History's Masterpieces. In the show notes and the blog post for today's episode, you will find a link to purchase a copy of the book if you are so inclined and have the means. Equally important, please tell your friends about this interview if you enjoyed it. And please share the world of Art Curious with just one person in your life, because every download and subscribe helps. So thank you. More episodes are coming soon. So stick with us to get more of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. Stay curious.